Describe yourself in three words. I'm an anthropologist. I'm an activist. I'm uh, from New England. Hi everyone, welcome to Global Health Lives. I'm Dylan David Kumar and today I'm joined by Professor Nora Gross, who is the Leonard Cheshire Chair of Disability and Inclusive Development in UCL. Nora is an anthropologist and global health expert who has worked on disability and global justice for decades. Nora, great to see you again. Thank you for having me. So we've met many times in the last years and worked together on different topics on microcephaly, on migration. We've even spoken in front of an audience of school children together. Um, the thing that always impresses me is that even in some of the very brief interactions we've had, you always say something that makes me think, something I just haven't thought about before, and that's really valuable for me. And one of those things was when we last spoke, you talked about your advocacy work. You said that research is a tool, it's ammunition, and that good research should make a difference, and interestingly, really good research should cause trouble. Can you expand on this and describe some of the, the trouble that you caused? I, well, I don't necessarily go out to cause trouble on a daily basis, but I do think we don't use uh, research often as effectively as we should. The, the end point of any research is not publication, it's whether people use your research to uh, make the world better. Uh, very few of us have PhDs or master's degrees. It's rare to, to see the inside of a, even a high school classroom for most people in the world. So I think we have a special obligation if we get this level of education, mm -hmm. not just to ask what we know, but what can we do with what we know? Um, so I've worked on a number of issues over the years as a anthropologist. My, uh, my interest crossed between kind of social science and what would now be considered international development, global health. I'm particularly interested in ways that uh, information or data can be used to push policy or program or practice. I've worked on um, issues of people with disabilities in low and middle income countries around issues of the uh, impact of the AIDS epidemic, for example, on people with pre-existing disabilities, on people working as disabled street beggars. Um, uh, I've worked on issues of inclusion of people People with disabilities uh, as equal members of the community in a number of different communities around the world, but also subgroups within those populations. You know, what are, are they getting equal treatment? What resources do they need? Are people listening to them? Because uh, the people with disabilities themselves uh, have to be the lead and the voice in much of this. Sure. Um, the, the issue is not for me to speak for them, but to provide, as I said, research, ammunition, information that can be used by the whole, um, uh, essentially, global disability rights movement. And, and disability is really common, isn't it? Disability is very overlooked. 15% of the world's population, basically one in every seven people worldwide, lives with one or more um, impairments that make a difference in their daily lives. Uh, we think worldwide now, according to the United Nations, about one billion people live with a disability, which makes them the largest minority in the world. And because people with disabilities often is not, they're not just disabled, but they're often denied a lot of basic resources that have very little to do with their disability and a lot to do with misinformation, stigma, and prejudice. They're less likely to get equal access to education, to employment, to civic engagement, to all the things that allow them to live the fullest and most meaningful lives they possibly can. 
Yeah, so, I mean, it's staggering, isn't it? It's such a large population that don't have access to services. I guess, uh, as you say, can't live the lives that they should be able to to live. I, I would add, it's also amazing how little we think about them when we think broad issues. We often think of them as an add-on afterwards. But if you're if you're talking about fifteen percent of the world's population, nothing is going to get fixed. Not the COVID epidemic, not AIDS, not um, poverty, not universal education, unless people with disabilities are included as part of the general community. Absolutely. So if we can go back and just talk a little bit about your life. You grew up in New York in a small blue-collar town. You have an identical twin sister and also a younger sister, and your parents were very focused on education, so you you worked very hard as children. But you had a very musical family, uh, focusing on classical music, and you played the oboe, went to the famous Juilliard School in New York, and then went on to study music in Michigan University. But in your first week, your roommate brought back a stack of books that piqued your interest and changed your career pathway. Can you tell us about that moment and what you what you did? Sure. Um, I actually, I'd been in classical music since I was about 14 or 15. My parents were very enthusiastic. My dad was an engineer. My mom was a housewife. My dad had an undergraduate degree, but they, they felt education was important for all their daughters. When I was interested in classical music, my dad was ecstatic. He loved classical music. Um, and I was a first-rate, third-rate oboist, you know, so I was okay, but I wasn't great. And by the time I reached uh, a university, I started um, at the University of Michigan as a music major. I, was, I wasn't looking around for anything else. Music was very much my world. But the first week, my uh, first semester, my roommate came in with a stack of books, which included everything I was always interested in. So it was, you know, Native American um, groups and uh, languages and archaeology and prehistory and um, pre-human populations. And I always read National Geographic, but it never occurred to me that this was a field. And I said, this is a field? And she said, yes, I'm taking an introduction to anthropology. And I said, you can make a living doing this? Well, possibly not so much. But by the following week, I had changed majors. Um, and I was an anthropology major focusing initially on anthropological archaeology. And I took my undergraduate degree in archaeology uh, and then went on for graduate school. Uh, anthropology was my second choice, actually. So so I, I ended up doing medicine, but I went to Manchester and I went to the anthropology open day. And that was the thing that really interested me. And now, now I work with lots of anthropologists. So it's, it's, it's around. <laughs> and I wound up in uh, eventually in medical anthropology. I, I graduated from Michigan and I was going to take a little time off before I went back to grad school. I found myself in rural Mexico, kind of as a junior person, helping to oversee a, a dig in the highlands of Oaxaca. And the village I lived in had a very high rate of infant mortality. Um, it occurred to me that as an anthropologist, that there wasn't really a field of medical anthropology way back then, but it occurred to me that I might be of more help to the world if I concentrated on living people than on archaeology. But as soon as we kind of end world hunger and figure out how to survive all these pandemics, I'm going back to archaeology. <laughs> I have plans for the future. You're still going back. Um, so I get a lot of young people who talk to me and ask me about their careers. And I always feel a little bit like a fraud because I still don't know what I'm doing now. But can you tell me about your your test, your New York Times test for career decisions? 
I um, help set up and run the uh, global health program at Yale University. I get students all the time going, you know, I want to fix everything. I don't know whether I want to do and you know, climate change or um, AIDS or um, I thought of something that I called the New York Times test. Here it would be the Guardian test. Your local newspaper will do it. I used to tell my students to get out the newspaper maybe two or three days in a row and see what articles they read first. What immediately draws you in? Is disaster an emergency issue? Is it a hunger, famine issue? You can't fix everything. So I think what's important if you're thinking about a career is to decide what you're most passionate about, not only because you'll be happier, but because probably it's the way your mind works. You'll be more creative and inventive. Mm. Get out a newspaper and just kind of pay attention to what you're reading. Thank you. That's, that's good advice. So then your next step, I guess, was with your now husband. You took a trip to Martha's Vineyard to, to see a musician. And this was another kind of pivotal moment in your life where you noticed there were many people with hereditary deafness, but who were able to communicate very effectively using a mixture of sign language and English with the other people there. And this was the start of your work on disability and, and the focus of your PhD at Brown University. Can you describe the work and describe the place there? I had gone back uh, to start a a PhD program at Brown in anthropology, Mm. Uh, and um, I didn't have a thesis topic. And I uh, went, actually, it was my second date with this really cute guy that I have (laughs) now been married for like decades. We went to um, the island of Martha's Vineyard to meet the island fiddler, whose name was uh, Gail Huntington, a a lovely guy. um, And he also was the island historian. And he started to talk about uh, the history of the island. And one of the things he mentioned was several people who were deaf. Eventually, I started to find out more about the deaf people on the island. At first, I thought, oh, this is this is interesting. Maybe it'll make a good short paper for this semester's course. And it festered into a thesis eventually. I came across an island that uh, had a, a high rate of hereditary deafness. There are many different types of hereditary deafness. And having communities with high rates of hereditary deafness is not that rare. I asked a really basic question as an anthropologist, which is, how did these people live? How did you communicate with them? At which point it turned out the islanders started to say, oh, it wasn't a problem because everyone here spoke sign language. So it was an example of a community that had adapted slightly to to fit in everyone. And it was uh, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, a lot of disabled people around the globe were starting to say, it's not us, it's a surrounding society. And the response, of course, was to say, nowhere in the world does society adapt to people with disabilities. You need to do all the adapting. But I come across society that for 250 years had adapted to the disability. So what was to us a very significant disability, profound deafness at birth, was to the islanders just part of a, you know, kind of human variation Mm. Uh, in the same way the island uh, adapted. And so the question then became, if everybody adapts, how well do disabled people fare? And it turned out they've they, they were their lives were identical to that of their non-disabled neighbors. And I published my findings and suddenly found myself very much in the middle of an emerging disability rights movement in both the U.S. and more globally. And that just shows the importance of the environment, right? That it, it's not the person, it's where they live. Exactly. It's it's um, most of the things we talk about when we talk about people with disabilities in terms of their inability to do something has very little to do with that person's 
physical impairment. But, you know, if you're a wheelchair user, there are a set of steps into the local school, you don't get an education. Or if there's stigma and prejudice and the kids bully you, if you're a child with an intellectual disability, you don't get an education. You don't get trained for a job. Nobody will hire you. If they hire you, you can get a job, but not a career. You don't get much advancement. Oh, there are often restrictions, even now, although legally it's not supposed to exist anymore in most countries. But there's restrictions in who you can marry, where you can live, uh, whether you have control over your own finances or not, uh, whether you can vote. All these things have nothing to do with disability, everything to do with the surrounding environment. The analogy I use with my children is um, to imagine if everyone in the world could fly. So in in this world, uh, we can walk, and in that respect, we're not considered disabled. But if everyone else could fly, suddenly the world would be structured around people who can fly, and then we would be disabled. It's, you know, it's everything around you that determines what you can do. That's a wonderful analogy. I really like that. Exactly. It. So then you, you spent the next 20 years or so working at Harvard and at Yale, where you set up and ran the Global Health Program there. Mm-hmm. And during this time, you were applying the disability lens to different areas of health, working on domestic violence, on HIV. Can you tell us about this approach and, and some of the things you worked on? When I finished my uh, PhD at Brown, I was fortunate to get a postdoc. Uh, I mean, it was kind of random. I, somebody asked me to give a talk on disability, and um, someone uh, had put, ran at the uh, Boston Children's Hospital's program on child abuse, um, and he heard me, and they had just had a postdoc cancel on them um, and said, you know, would, would, you like, would you like to come as a postdoc? So all, all, all the best invitations. All the best invitations. So I thought, well, I could stay at home as an unemployed person who just got her PhD or I could take a postdoc at Harvard. So I decided the postdoc at Harvard probably was a better career move. Um, so I joined the child abuse team at Boston Children's Hospital. I'm not a clinician, by the way, and I, it's very important for me to say that. But I, I'm also very clear about professional boundaries when it comes to what I can and can't do. But they asked me to come in the uh, the child abuse team and kind of look at what happened to children with disabilities. And at the time, it was the early 80s, almost nothing had been done on abuse against uh, people with uh, disabilities. And so I, I spent about two years, uh, and then I continued on after that, as looking at various components of, of overlaying what I knew about disabilities with what I knew initially about child abuse, and I expanded to other global health um, issues. It, it's very much um, like you take many things in um, global health and you put a women's lens on it or an indigenous lens on it. It's often I, I find that people do best in terms of research when they combine something they know with um, something where the area may not be one that they're familiar with, so they bring their expertise into other conversations. I was at Harvard for about six or seven years, and then I was offered the equivalent of a lectureship, a junior professorship at Yale at the School of Public Health. I went there. They didn't have a global health program, so I, with um, Professor Lowell Levin, helped put together and build a global health program, but I also brought my disability interest. So started at Yale in 1990s, and it was still very much the middle of the AIDS epidemic. I, I spent a 
couple of years doing lots of other things, including lots of other things with disabilities. But one day I woke up and I said, what do we know about the impact of AIDS on people with pre-existing disabilities? Mm -hmm. It was my hypothesis that people with disabilities probably were at increased risk for AIDS. I started to ask people up to and including um, uh, the former head of UNAID joined Yale as the um, the new dean of, uh, of the School of Public Health, Mike Merson. I was in his office within like a week of him arriving. What, what do you know about people with disability and AIDS? And he gave the same answer as just about everybody else at that point, which is, oh, I never thought about it. In fact, I thought the, the body of work that we did subsequently should be called, oh, I never thought about it. I, I and then a group of colleagues got together and did a body of work around AIDS and the risk of people with disabilities, which when you think about it, people with disabilities are um, uh, often get very little or no sexual education. Um, they, um, they they usually are as sexually active as uh, all other members of the community, although they're, all, despite the fact that no one discusses it and they often don't discuss it or in the past didn't discuss it. Uh, they are often at significantly increased risk for domestic violence and rape, including things like virgin rape, because people assume that people with disabilities are not sexually active, so they must be virgins. So we found all these things, and we got all these disability groups involved, and it's um, I, I think we're fairly effective. In fact, uh, today, uh, UNAIDS, for example, every, you know their new five-year plan has a lot on disability and people with disabilities, and there's a lot of activities. There's still a lot more to be done. And it wasn't just me in the end. There was a lot of people who kind of came on board and worked on these issues. But um, it was an example of how when you bring something like disability into a new field, the other example was a major national survey on women and um, uh, various cancers. And I, and I said, did you ask about whether any of these women were disabled? It was access to care. And this person was, you know, kind of counting this huge study. And he said what lots of other people say, which is, oh, we kept people with disabilities out of the study entirely because it was just too many variables. Well, it's not too many variables. Either you can use a mammogram machine or you can't, or someone thinks you should be followed for cancer or you can't. Mm. And, and that's really important. Is it goes back to what you said before. If there's a billion people in the world with disabilities, to exclude that billion people, it's, it's just a silly thing to do. If nothing else, it's it's, so, it's a lost opportunity because, again, uh, especially with the new uh, sustainable development goals, previous Millennium Development Goals didn't include a word about disability, which meant that for many people who were, uh, you know, ministers of health or heads of state who are racing to to, to meet some of the MDG goals, it was better to keep people with disabilities out entirely because they would just muddy the water. Mm. We'll, we'll deal with that later. Um, the SDGs specifically have a tagline in it saying, leave no one behind. And disability is used both overall and then, as mentioned specifically, about seven times in the SDGs, because we now know that unless you include 15% uh, of the world's population, none of these things are going to meet everybody's needs. And the, the other interesting thing you, you were saying is that I always find that I'm bringing the thing that we're not talking about. So I, I went to two WHO meetings in, within a month, and one was on migration, and I was a child health person talking about migration. And then the next one was on child health, and then I was a migration person talking about yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I always bring the thing that we're not talking about. The new buzzword is uh, intersectionality. After they finish with that, they'll come up with another 
buzzword, but after a while it starts to look like life. <laughs> you know, you have to consider all the variables, but it's important to consider, it's important to think more broadly. So for example, we were just saying that it's 15% of the world's population, but that's kind of a, a misleading number because every one of those, or almost every one of those people are members of families, communities, they head households or they're members of households. Most people are a large number of people with disabilities have children of their own. So they're not the end point of some program or policy. They have to make decisions, uh, advocate on behalf of and use community resources for their parents, for their children, yeah. for their spouses. And so whatever we want to call it, we need to think creatively whenever we're talking about the needs of a specific population. So from Yale, you then came to UCL to take up the posts that you currently have. And this has been more than a decade of work that was really a byproduct of trying to get a free holiday in London. Can you, can you tell us about how that happened? That makes it sound so seedy, but <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Um, I had been at Yale for a actually 18 years, 19 years, and I was in many ways very happy at Yale, but I couldn't concentrate wholly on disability. So a job was advertised as uh, the Leonard Cheshire Center at uh, UCL. Uh, Leonard Cheshire, the large disability charity for many years, um, funded the center to do research on disability um, in 2007, 2008. There were very few um, centers anywhere in the world that allowed you to do research specifically on people with disabilities in, um, in, in, on a global level or in low and middle income countries. So I saw this job uh, advertised and my husband, Larry, said, oh, I'll give it a try. And a colleague of mine who will go nameless, but who is a very senior person in the field, kind of kept nudging me, you know, have you written a letter yet? Have you? I thought, well, if I'm one of the three finalists, um, then I get, uh, they bring me over and I get an interview and a free weekend in London. And I loved London. So it's a bit of a kind of, a, kind of a, I, it's not that I didn't think the job would be great, but I really didn't think I'd be the top candidate. Sure. And so um, uh, I turned out to be one of the three finalists. And when I was there, they offered me the job. So I was, uh, I was very relaxed at the interview because, <laughs> you know, I, I got what I wanted out of this. But it was really such an unusual opportunity to head a team of researchers that really concentrated on working on um, applied issues on disabilities in low and middle income countries. So I knew I'd regret it if I didn't take the job. Mm. And, and can you describe the, the department and the kinds of things that you do here? We're connected with Leonard Cheshire for many years, and so we did some work for Leonard Cheshire. Did their, did their programs work? Research all had to do with issues of disability and health or disability and uh, public policy, especially around international development. And we did a lot of expert uh, work for the United Nations system. So we'd be working with uh, UNICEF, uh, the World Health Organization, um, the World Bank, the International Labor Organization. Uh, an example of a, a project for that was um, with, there'd been almost nothing done on people who worked as disabled street beggars. So uh, we, we approached the um, ILO for some funding. They uh, funded a project where we went to um, Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, and did a series of surveys, interviews, focus groups with people who work as disabled street beggars. How did you wind up here? What's your access to health, to other resources? Um, uh, you know, what's your daily lives like? Um, what do you see as your futures? And it was really, it was, you know, a very interesting study. Um, 
uh, that uh, informed both what the ILO did, but also importantly kind of brought a new dimension to a population that had been long overlooked, even by people who worked on global disability issues. Sorry, what, what, what did you find with, with that project? Well, we found it was more a more mixed group mm. um, than we thought. And, and the one thing that brought them together, you know, why does one person with a disability wind up on the streets and another with an identical disability doesn't? And it had to do with social support and social support networks. Uh, even if they had the very uh, marginal lives in many ways, in terms of the you know the money and the where they worked and what they did, um, those people fared better than the people who had, for whatever reasons, had been disconnected from the the uh, social support systems they had in the villages for which they came. Mm. We're just now starting another project to look at that in more depth to do like a comparative study of poverty and disability in uh, in four African countries where we we compared the issues not how people with disabilities fare but how they fare in comparison to the non-disabled. So if everybody in the community is poor, then saying a disabled person is poor is less important and people with disabilities statistically fare much worse. How they compare to other members of their families and their communities. And one thing we did was um, we hypothesized and we found to be true that when uh, international development efforts come into a, a you know funding and projects come into communities, um, people with disabilities actually often fare in some ways worse. We call it the disability and development gap. So if no children in the village go to school, then the disabled child isn't that much different than the rest of the children around her. But uh, if you have a school in the village and the disabled child is not in that school and everyone else is, suddenly issues of illiteracy, lack of social contact, lack of um, growing up with your peers becomes much more severe. And we found that in a number of domains in education, employment, access to health. And, and that's so important, isn't it? Interventions that come in can broaden inequalities. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and if you broaden the inequalities, and you know, what good is that? Especially if with a little bit of planning, you can avoid it. Mm, absolutely. Um, can I then ask you about some of the policy work that you've done? So you've had a hand in crafting some of the most important international instruments uh, to improve health, to uphold the, the rights of people with disabilities. Um, can you tell us about some of these, about what we think they've achieved, but also some of the barriers in producing them? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, I've worked uh, at a certain point in your career, you start to get recruited uh, into uh, lots of committees and yeah. uh, international organizations, in part because, uh, you know, you have the expertise, in part because if you're with a, a, a university, they figure you'll do it for free. <laughs> I'm not sure why they kept calling on me, but I've done a lot of senior advising work for a lot of the UN agencies. And importantly, the United Nations has gotten very involved with um, redefining disability on a global level. Uh, the first big piece of legislation to go through the United Nations in the 21st century was the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Um, in the year 2000, only 40 countries in the world had any legislation to guarantee uh, the rights of people with disabilities. So if, if I was in one of the other 150 or so countries that didn't have that legislation, if you came into my restaurant in a wheelchair, I could say, uh, you're making people uncomfortable leave. Mm. Or um, I could say to the 
a child who has a hearing uh, uh, problem, people like you don't need an education. You can't, you can't come into the classroom. So there's nothing that would guarantee the rights of people with disabilities. It, it, well, there was a movement um, led by the Global Disability Rights Movement to put in a, a convention on uh, the rights of persons with disabilities. The UN Convention, once it's passed by 20 countries, becomes global law, basically, and then countries ratify it. I was on a number of committees for the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. I didn't lead the charge. I was just one of the experts. It was a real honor to be part of it. The convention has now been ratified by, I believe, 184 countries out of the 193 in the UN. And um, it's on target to be ratified by all of them except probably the United States, which ratifies nothing. So it's now kind of global law. Um, and it, the important part is not just country ratifies it, but to ratify a convention, um, you have to put all your national laws and local policies in line with the convention. Now, enforcement is something else, but the convention is a starting point. So I worked on that. And then in 2015, the MDG's time frame was up. Uh, and so people started to work a few years before on the uh, sustainable development goals. And um, I was chair of the committee for the United Nations, and we worked on getting disability into the SDGs. So I had done a review of the MDGs for the uh, Department of Economic and Social Affairs, UN Secretary General's Office at the UN, a couple of years before that, saying, you know, leaving people out of disabilities by, by the MDGs was a real problem, and here's why, and I spelled out. And so when it came to the SDGs, I, I think I was, you know, a sitting duck for the person. Yes. <laughs> chair of the committee. And we brought together um, some of the leading folks in disability uh, advocacy, disability rights, a number of leading disability groups. And together, they really pushed to have disability. Um, the tagline, leave no one behind, was part of the effort. And I think it's made a difference. Now, whether the SDGs are making a difference, another you know, discussion for another day. Mm-hmm. But uh, each of those pieces of legislation affect a billion people. And so it's really nice to be able to be part of groups of people. No one does this on their own. There's no one person or one academic or one intellectual who, who makes these things happen. It's really a group effort involving hundreds of not thousands of uh, really dedicated activists, academics, um, uh, occasional politicians. It's amazing to see that change over the last 20 years from 40 countries to now almost the entire world ratifying this convention. And it, it's a big part of the SDGs and, and, and global policy now. So that's, that's a massive change. Um, it is a massive change. Unfortunately, nothing stays fixed. So the issue is not just to have it in law or to, to get it, you know, ratified by all these countries. It needs to be enforced um, at the country level. And then you need to be continually vigilant to make sure that uh, the changes that you put in place stay in place. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, and then finally, on a more personal uh, level, so the last year with COVID-19 and the pandemic has been a, a tough one for you personally. Um, you were diagnosed with a lymphoma, which I'm very glad to say is in remission. Um, but contrasting to this, you've become a grandparent for the first time and now have a six-month-old to to play with. Um, can, you, can you talk about the, this last year and, and what, what's happened? Um, yeah, well, I, I, for some reason, cleverly decided to get um, a, a blood cancer in the middle of a pandemic so that, you know, there's nothing like wandering around London with no white blood cells in the middle of a, of a COVID epidemic. Um, I was uh, 
diagnosed quite by chance, and it was a fairly advanced cancer. And so they immediately brought me into Macmillan, which I, I can't say enough for the good care I've gotten. The only bad thing about Macmillan was that the um, the treatment rooms overlooked my office. So I spent a lot of time sitting there going, oh, you know, I probably should get to work. But I really wasn't in much condition to get to work. Uh, I, uh, I And I, um, I was just, I considered myself really lucky, having worked in a number of countries around the world. I was really lucky to be in a country where I had access to good cancer care. Whatever my outcome was, I realized that the, the vast majority of people have really no um, options when they if they get diagnosed with cancer. Um, and more than that, I was in the UK, which has the National Health Service. So unlike the US, where I, I had good health insurance, but I'd be still battling it out with the insurance companies, you know, I, had, mm. I didn't have that stress either. So um, I'm luckily in remission now. And in the meantime, I have two children. I have a son who uh, who now works for UNICEF and a daughter who uh, works for an animal rights organization. But uh, she and her uh, partner decided that it was time to have kids. So uh, I, I've been very good. I haven't been hucking my kids to you know, to get grandkids, but I've been secretly hoping to <laughs> do so. So I now have a six-month-old granddaughter named Lily, who's obviously the most brilliant young woman on the planet. And I'm having a very good time being a grandmother. Um, uh, I, and I, I, I'm not ready to retire yet, but I'm. I, it's nice to have balance in life. I, I guess because I've had kids in a family, I've always had balance in life. Um, mm. Uh, and which is easy to say, but hard to do when you're an academic. But I'm having a great time being grandmother. So wonderful. Thank you. Um, so thank you, Nora. Um, you've been a leader in the world of disability and disability rights, especially pushing the, the emphasis that disability is created by the environment. But from my perspective, it's just wonderful to talk to you because I learn something every time I do. So thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you to my guest, Nora Gross. The episode was produced by Priscilla Jimare Sato and myself, with editing by Sam Gomberg. The theme song is Paper Stars by Liam Aiden. This is a Global Health Lives podcast. Thank you for listening.